Beep, beep, time for sleep. But these pod boys are keeping me awake. I need a doctor of sleep. I'm the true thought, Matisse Van Rossum. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Ben Sheets, and I eat fear and drink blood. I'm Cleveland Mosier, and I got a question for you guys. Who murder, baseball boy? (laughs) Who murder? We'll never find out. Who murder, baseball boy? Who red rummed, baseball boy? Who red rum murder, baseball boy? Well, this week, we're coming at you with our review of the brand new film, Dr. Sleep. But before we do, there's a little bit of housekeeping to get out of the way. We have the final results of our 2019 predictions, and we have the winner who will decide our end-of-the-year fate. Indeed. Uh, We predicted 16 movies. Wow. Um, Out of those, 14 actually came out. Um, The other two have a definitive release date next year, uh, The Grudge and uh, New Mutants. But we have results on Zombieland, Double Tap, and The Lighthouse. So first, uh, Zombieland. Tease, you predicted... A uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 72, and a box office of 70 million. Christ, I was generous. Um, Cleve, you predicted a Rotten Tomatoes of 55, and a box office of 60 mil. And I predicted a Rotten Tomatoes yeah. of 38, and a box office of 34 million. Mm. Um, final results, Rotten Tomatoes score was 68. So, Tease, you get that one. Holy Just, shit. Look at that. Um, within four there. I thought I was being um, too generous. And it made twenty six point eight million at the box office wow. opening weekend. Yeah. I, so I, I, I got I that one for sure. Yeah, yeah I I really thought that there would be a larger wave of uh, Zombieland nostalgia that would take people to see that one in theaters. What kept me away was the trailer because <laughs> that movie looks like shit. Yeah, yeah. And we did, we it, didn't have that word. kind of yeah, did not look very good. I'm, no, I didn't want to see it, and I'm kind of surprised that it got as high as a 68 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I have a feeling I'll see it over Christmas break at some point. And the other one we had predicted was, of course, The Lighthouse. Um, TCU predicted a Rotten Tomatoes score of 92. And an opening weekend of $22 million. Cleve, you predicted 87 on Rotten Tomatoes and an opening weekend box office of $6 million. And I predicted oh, I uh, 92 on Rotten Tomatoes and an opening weekend of $28 million. So All it right. turns out, Tease and I, we both were on the money. It was exactly 92. Exactly 92? Yeah. Yes! Awesome! Um, unfortunately, the box office opening weekend was three million only Aww. yeah I didn't that's wanna... so sad i had the lowest it one, is right? yeah yeah wow. you did you want to win that one damn yeah you that's disappointing yeah it is. it is it's a bummer i mean in fairness it didn't get the widest release no i got a, quite a small one yeah so larger than the witch and so i i was hoping that it would get a bigger opening weekend than the witch but you know indie horror films they always got to fly in under the radar and then explode later on, I guess. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it did well for the release it got. I mean, I Same. wish it would have done better, but I think Robert Eggers still has a storied career in front of him. So so final results. Tease, uh, you had nine correct picks. You had uh, six correct Rotten Tomatoes and uh, three correct box office. Okay. Cleve, you had eight correct picks. So um, close. Wow. One correct Rotten Tomatoes and seven correct box office. 
Cha-ching, boy. Uh, Holy damn. shit. You done it. And wow. I had... I gotta count this shit. <laughs> 13. Yeah. I had 13. So I had nine correct Rotten Tomatoes and four correct box office. All right. Well, uh, we will not yet be announcing what the final films that we will be catching up on at the end of the year, but those will be Ben's choice as the winner. So uh, we'll return to that. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll give year. a teaser for one of them. I hope you like to break stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's just one of these days. <laughs> So uh, that's exciting. We have a whole load of predictions we're going to make uh, in the coming episodes for next year, um, but we'll hold off on that just yet. Yes, the month of December will be a little bit different this year. We have some, some fun stuff planned, so stay tuned until then. But for now, on to our main and more pressing business. Today we are discussing... The brand new 2019 film, Dr. Sleep, directed by Mike Flanagan and starring Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, and Cliff Curtis. Years following the events of The Shining, a now adult Dan Torrance meets a young girl with similar powers as he tries to protect her from a cult known as the True Knot, who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. This is going to be a pretty divisive one, I think. Yeah, I think a little Somewhat. bit. I, I think before we get into the meat of it, I want to quickly touch on two things. Uh, the first is I want to mention our theater experience a little bit. Oh my because god, what a Even if ass. unconsciously, it might have affected all of our opinions a little bit. That's um, true. Uh, we ended up waiting about an hour, 45 yeah, minutes. Ju just about an hour. Uh, before being told, oh yeah, we didn't have the download completed for this movie. We had the, the, the theater was given the wrong key, and now they had the right one, but it was going to take five hours to download. So, uh, And it was about 9.45 at the time at when point. they told us this, and the movie's two and a half hours long. They got us into another theater, unfortunately a smaller one uh, that was not in uh, Dolby surround like we were going to go see it. Uh, kind of a bummer there. And uh, after an hour of waiting around, we did finally get to see the movie. Yes. Uh, and they, in fairness, they gave us free tickets as yeah, well. We were comped. Shit it was a bit of a it. bummer. Um, the second one thing I want to mention is uh, you're the only one who's read the book. Yes. Tease. And I think... Both The Shining and Doctor uh, Yes. The yes. books, plural. Yes. And well, I, think, I think that may play into our opinions quite a bit, actually. Yes. Uh, I actually would like to, before we commence with the review, make a couple of concessions for my defense of this movie. Yeah. Because I'm very okay with like you, you going first. I'm the only one among us who liked this movie quite a lot. To sort of qualify my my defenses uh, of this, I will say that I wholeheartedly agree that all of the Shining fan service stuff, extremely heavy-handed uh, and bad to the point of laughable. I concede that. Second, as you said, I have read The Shining and Doctor Sleep, and I've been thinking about it over the last few days, and I think that what it really comes down to is that the story of Doctor Sleep works very well as a sequel to Stephen King's The Shining. 
I don't think it works very well as a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. I think that despite their similarities, there's enough difference between the source material and Kubrick's film that Dr. Sleep as a sequel doesn't really translate. And when you add on top of that a bunch of just direct references to The Shining to be like, hey, remember this? Hey, remember that? I, I can understand how, to a lot of viewers, it comes across as kind of insulting. With that in mind, like, we are talking about the film as a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining because that's what they intend it as. Uh, I thought that as an adaptation of the Dr. Sleep novel, it was uh, extremely faithful and did a lot of things that I really, really liked. That's my my grain of salt going into this, and I, I, I will understand why you guys didn't like a lot of the things that no, you No, and like. I think you made a lot of really good points there. I think uh, one of the biggest problems I had with it was it felt almost a little too much like a literal adaptation too directly to the point where it almost felt a little bloated because it wasn't trying to streamline stuff too much. Yeah. Um, Leaving stuff that kind of hanged and didn't really have the impact that it would on the page, as well as having some problems of general Stephen King stuff that works on the page, but doesn't really work visually. The biggest thing, for example, is like monologuing characters. Sure. Yeah. I, uh, Stephen King's stuff relies pretty heavily on, uh, on inner monologues of the characters, uh, and sometimes trying to adapt that onto the screen really doesn't work. Also, like, just a thing about Stephen King in general, the things that make people like myself and a lot of people like Stephen King also turn a lot of people off about Stephen King. Stephen King is a very all-over-the-place writer. Oh, he has He has a lot of grand ideas that he gets really attached to, and he'll throw them all at the wall to see what sticks. I think that it's usually so weird and out there and unusual that a lot of it works really well. And for some people, it's like, this is just messy. For me, like, oh, this is this is fantastic. Stephen King's brain is a, is a strange place, <laughs> well, I think. Well, I, th- I think especially comparing it to the Shining movie, where it's so streamlined and intent-focused that having all these different avenues and corners where some things don't really have the weight I think they probably do have in the book, it kind of leaves some of that stuff flat. And also that, like, thematically, Kubrick's Shining is quite different in that it's more about, like, the, the collapse of... Uh, of, like, a man's willpower and, you know, succumbing to his baser and worse instincts and, and things like that. And Dr. Sleep is, is like, what if uh, there weren't just uh, bad places that ate psychic power, but what if there are also people who do it? If you're coming off of, like, Kubrick's The Shining, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because no. that doesn't, no. that's not really what his movie is about. Yeah, do you mind if I get into it for a second? By all means. So, I think I lie, like, somewhere between the middle on y'all's points, um, though, Ben, you haven't gotten into that yet, and I definitely want to leave that for you, um, partially, because I think you you were the most uh, intent. But my general perspective on adapting King is a little all over the place uh, as well. But I tend to enjoy his written works quite well. I I like how obtuse it is. I like how much he throws at the wall. He's very creative and fun. 
But uh, if if we we hark back to the previous episode about what I in particular liked about The Shining, I used the word organic a lot yeah. and natural and subtle. And Doctor Sleep is not any of that. No, no. at all. No, <laughs> not at all. And uh, you know, like one of the most effective aspects. It's most unnatural, in fact. Uh, yeah, we because by, by intention, though, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because one of the things that Stephen King, if I remember, you brought up correctly. Uh, one of the things that Stephen King did not enjoy about Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining is that the hotel's malevolent force is more ambiguous. Yes, it's not like a, it doesn't come across necessarily as a conscious being. Uh, you know, I made a defense for the film saying I think it's more effective. I think we all. Did. Yeah, um, it's something uh, I really like about the, yeah, the Shining. Sure. But that's, that's the thing about Kubrick Shining as opposed to King Shining is that Kubrick Shining is not really about what its title is. It's not about The Shining. Yeah. And the novel is. That's yes. why it's titled that. Um, it's much more so about Danny's role and the hotel using his father's weakness to try to get at Danny because of the power that he possesses, that it wants. That is something that is just not really in the film. And I think that it streamlines it in a way that it makes it much more focused. Yeah. And also generally believable as well. Any sure. of the, the psychic events that occur it, 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 are, are primarily just like singular visions. It feels more within the bounds of reality, where right. where in the novel it's like this is a, an, an evil sentient hotel that's trying to uh, consume Danny's psychic power, but it can't get out at him without the use of his father. Right, because who's the one character in The Shining who never experiences anything supernatural? Wendy. Wendy. Yeah. Right, and we, we, we view the eyes through of the film through Wendy primarily, and when we don't, we are subjected to Well, she does see the ghost unreliable... of the guy in the dog costume sucking the other dude's dick. She does see yes, that. Yes, at the very end. Yeah. Once the hotel's reached, it's like it's full power. Fuck it, and, mask and that's, off. Yeah. That's where you know the film sort of reveals that, oh, these things are literal. But up until then, it can be translated as an unreliable narrator. Yeah. It's the mind of a child. It's their imagination. It's uh, Jack losing his mind. Um, you know, he, he's made out to not be stable to begin with. So we can, you know, interpret that more organically. And it doesn't ever take you out of reality until the very end. And even then, it's subtle, it's small. You know, it's sort of seeing something weird. Yeah. Uh, that allows me to exist in the film, like, intellectually and mentally, and uh, approach it more logistically. That makes the horror all the more effective, right? It feels more believable and real. And I, I mean, the game we're working on is, like, very abstract, wacky fantasy horror. Like, I, I love that genre as well, but I tend to think you have to take greater steps to make that more horrifying. Yeah. Because of that. And Dr. Sleep, and we, we brought this up the other day, it's like there's a lot of things, and I think you, you disagree a little bit, and I'll let you disagree with it again, as I think it's more of a perspective thing. But on paper, I can see how a lot of those concepts in Dr. Sleep are terrifying. And, and I found them repulsive, but I wasn't, I never felt like scared for myself or like for the characters because of like the presentation of the plot. It felt a little bit more framed than The Shining did. And whereas in The Shining, you really don't know what's going to happen to Wendy. The first time I watched it, I thought she was going to die. Even, you know, after however many years of it being ingrained in pop culture, I 40. didn't know that fact. And I was able to still feel tension watching that film, uh, not knowing what was coming next. And I I think that's incredibly admirable. Sure. But anyway, enough about The Shining. We did a whole podcast episode about that. Though we will be brought I, up I think I think the comparison is important, though. I mean, it has to be. I oh, think, extremely. It has I think to be made. Just you, talking about the specificities of The Shining. 
in terms of the ambiguity of the horror. This film is very much the opposite. Oh, yeah. It definitely spells out it calls what it the threats are yeah. every yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. And I think to its detriment a lot. I, I one One comparison between, and this is a connection to The Shining directly, which I know is one of your problems as well, is yeah. The Lady in Room 237. In The Shining... She shows up essentially once, once, and it's horrifying because it's a surprise, and we we get the reaction before the actual shot of her. Yeah. And we were talking about this in the Shining episode. I don't want to repeat myself too much, but in this movie, she appears every 15 minutes. It's just her appearing. It's not... Her drenched in the shadows half the time. It's her just being out there, you know, being a crawling around, being a spooky ghost. Sure. And on top of that, it's it's just evocative of a bigger problem with this movie. I don't think it's a bad thing to lay out the rules of the world, but it makes it less horrifying in a way. If, sure. If those rules are clear to the audience. Yes, I think uh, when when you say uh, that it, it makes its rules and the exposition is all very direct uh, a detriment to the film, I think it, it makes it a detriment to the film horrifically. I think it definitely removes a, a, a good deal of the fear. If you understand what's going on, if you know what the monster's like goal is and what it looks like, it you know can be less scary. But as a fun movie, I think it's great for that. As soon as I stop looking at the film, which is very, very difficult for me because of how often it reminds me it's a sequel to The Shining. But if I go into the film, or I go to my memory of the film, and if I'm not looking for that, if I'm just looking for a fun movie and just pull myself away from The Shining as much as possible, I think it is a very fun film. It's the kind of film that I tend to like. I said it when we left the theater, it's one of the best live-action animes I've ever seen. And anime uses those same, like, storytelling mechanics very often, where the world has all these very specific little rules and things. You know, you're a Shinigami, this means this and this. And we get to learn and see how the characters interact with that world. Also very similar to Harry Potter as well. I got a lot of Harry Potter vibes off of this movie. There's a lot of magic going on. Yes, and, and like, in kooky characters, you know, like, she's wearing, like, a gambler's hat. There's a lot yeah. of, like, anachronistic things. It's it's very J.K. Rowling. Like, J.K. Rowling, well, like, it has a lot of those credit, ideas. Credit to King. It's very King, and he's been doing it for a long time before J.K. Rowling. No, um, you're absolutely so, right. I'll, I'll definitely give like, you that. Like, his, his books are full of weird anachronistic characters like that. Yeah. He does that He does that very well. And I, I, don't, I don't think that your comparison to Harry Potter is incorrect because there hey, those is, are things I like about there is, there is a lot of like magic stuff and like weird kooky characters. But uh, I, I just I, I want there to be credit <laughs> where credit is due to Stephen King that he has been doing that shtick for far longer than J.K. Rowling. So yeah, sure. well, I just want to say like I, I definitely agree with that point as it affects the horror. I think the problem in this film lies with it being stuck between three worlds, essentially. You know, you have the loyalty towards the source material with mm -hmm. King's work. You have the weight of Kubrick's The Shining, yep. as well as making an entertaining movie. It's the, a lot of the, things to juggle. The cost of that is, yes, I think there's a solid 45-minute chunk of this movie that's wholly entertaining and super fun. The problem is this movie's two and a half hours long. 
I don't think it sustains that factor throughout the whole thing. I would say it does. I would disagree as I, well. I think it, I it is quite slow time. and quite a, a little boring in the the first act setup. Interesting. And it hits yeah, the I never kind of find it kind, uh, kind of the generic arc points in the in the story with the little girl and you and McGregor's Danny. Mm-hmm. I will um, agree that like the the narrative uh, arc is very predictable and similar. And when was this book written? Uh, 2000... Okay, well, I can't excuse it, Sage. But, um, it's uh, it's that. pretty 16, recent. 16, yeah, 16, yeah, the, 2016, and, something and like that's that. That's fine. It's, like, that, that can be recent. fine. And uh, I, I, do, I do agree that there are just a number of moments where, like, you know, she appears before Ian McGregor, and Ian McGregor's like, no, I can't do this for the, you know, like, the, the Shining needs to die, and it's, it's very Last Jedi. And, and I actually, I pulled, I pulled up Last Jedi again just to compare, and it, is, it does have a, ver- a lot of very similar plot points. Where you know she approaches the master who is Ewan McGregor in this, and sure. he, he you know he he turns her away, and so you know as soon as that happens, I know okay, well a horrible event has to happen, like to to in, inspire him to teach her after all and to guide her, and there, there are a number of moments like that in the film that like they, there's a lot of like setups that are very clear. I agree that narratively it's quite predictable. Yeah, and that's what I mean by boring. I think there's entertaining, I don't you think know, predictability necessarily pieces in it, but I don't feel like though. there's there's stakes because it's so predictable. Well, the I do agree. Are I very think... low because you know what's going to happen. I, I do see it uh, as a potential problem, uh, perspective-wise. But I personally, I felt even during those sequences, I was never left bored because the stuff that was going on was so kooky and wacky. I might have known, okay, he's going to have to. There's going to have to be like a Dark Knight of the Soul moment, and like someone's probably going to have to die, or something horrible is going to happen. And this, you know, for this girl, for Ian McGregor to feel convinced to help her, but I don't know what it is, and it's probably going to be something wacky. So I was still sitting in my seat. I like, will, I will say that I think that one of the things in terms of adapting the actual novel that the film does not do very well is establish the relationship between Dan and Abra. There's much more time devoted to that in the book that I was kind of disappointed to see was was left out of the film because i i agree it, it comes across as kind of trite with him being like the wise master who has like forsaken the 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 power and that she's like the the new young apprentice you know whose power rivals his own and has to convince him to like teach her to use it I, I agree that that's how the film comes across because the development of their two characters and how they sort of end up entwined in this thing together rather than being brought together by by some other power or fate. In the book, it's much more like they get caught up in this despite, you know, trying to run from it. I feel like there's a solid 45 minutes before you get into the true inciting incident of the the baseball kid. Um, it does take a long time you know, to get to the inciting incident. Yeah, and that is quite a lot of buildup for a movie. And what I will say though is the buildup is is fun because we get a lot of focus on uh you said they're called the true knot. The true knot. Yeah, yeah. like we uh which I think was only mentioned once in the film. Um uh we they get a lot of like, folks in the true knot and I thought they were really fun. They look I love like the true knot. And, uh, they, they look the like Aerosmith groupies. I just want to put that oh, out. Oh yeah, there. but that's, that's Great. That, yeah, that's <laughs> what I love. Yeah. 
Because they kind of would. Like, I, they're dated, you know? Like, they've been around for so long. Like, their sense of style's a well, little yeah, off. Yeah, a lot I, of them have I been... I like that. In in the book, there's uh, they're mostly elderly. I was kind of disappointed that that wasn't so much of an aspect of this one. There's That's really interesting, a- because I feel like it would have hit home better with the, the senior yeah. living facility. Because well, the, I- the idea is that they're... That it's just, like, this group of elderly uh geriatric psychic vampires essentially who tour the country in a caravan of rvs hunting children who possess the shining and torturing them to death to consume their steam as they call it which is the shining and i think that having them all be elderly in the book except for like Rose and like the young girl who she brings in which we do see I think that 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 makes it creepier kind of just like these old people in their RVs that are actually like ancient uh well, spiritual vampires yeah. well, one like, of my favorite with a modern perspective though kind of making them look a little bit like hipsters you well, know they're, in their they're RVs so, they're is, similarly is they're similarly anachronistic like their leader is called rose the hat because she never takes off that hat my favorite <laughs> of those characters is the du- the old dude from twin peaks that shows oh, uh carl striker i believe yeah yeah, yeah he, the giant yeah. he stole the show and every scene he was Grandpa in yeah. Flick. yeah he's yeah. he's great i thought the true knot was great the actors they're, who played rose was just very compelling Rebecca Ferguson and what I thought, a great actress I thought she did a great job no uh and yeah while we're on that that's one thing I I really can't critique uh, is any of the actors performances I think everyone in this film showed up well I think we'll I think the, get into one specific well, well I don't that it's just the way that guy looks that there was the problem we'll get I can't to even, that. I can't we'll, even talk we'll get, about we'll get to that footnote we'll get to that. big old big old footnote on that but regarding the main cast I think everyone really showed up like like and all of their performances feel very genuine you know Ewan McGregor at the the beginning of this film as like a like a dirty old hobo mm-hmm. wandering around and you see like his his arc of mentorship Honestly, just seeing Ian McGregor as a dirty old hobo makes me really want to see an Obi Wan movie. <laughs> well, I won't, I won't get into that. Yeah, but I, I, I know how you guys feel about Star Wars, but like, I do. I think I just I want to see Ian McGregor. I as a think dirty old I hobo think you and McGregor does such a great job taking dialogue that would normally come off as kind of corny and give it an authenticity. Sure. Um, I don't think all the actors in this movie do that well, especially in comparison to you and McGregor. But I think it's pretty decent to good for the most part i i didn't find anybody over the top in a way that i didn't want them to be yeah rose Uh, is so she hams it up and it's great she's she's the she's the hammiest but i think that that works for her character she's a theatrical person she is uh and i think it makes her a good villain i think she she carries the right amount of charm and menace and also just like the perfect touch of exaggeration like being just a little bit over the top but not so much that it's cartoonish yeah you really want to like her character and then you remember that she eats children well yeah you want so yeah you want you you can't help but find her charming but you see what she does and what drives her and i and it's quite horrifying yeah it's a it's it's not a love to hate situation it's a hate to love yeah you know and i i i I really like that. 
And I, yeah, her, her character was super fun. Again, very comic booky, but I really like comic books. I love the shit out of her character. Comic booky is a good way it of is. describing yeah, this book-y. film yeah, like, in general. Very think, anime, very comic booky. I think and, the stakes are fairly low just because, again, you kind of know what's coming and you know the threat. It's it's spelled out very directly to you. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's all very literal. And like, it's the, more about the ride. When you see them the like feasting unexpected. on the children's steam as well like the the depiction of the steam is is as literal as it can be of the shining like yeah. you see just like smoke come out of the their mouths like in a in a conjuring fashion and it's so and they vape it right up and they vape yeah. it right the fuck up as and their eyes glow right and aesthetically i like think it it's though. great i i, I thought like it was it. very fun um yeah. it doesn't it, it because it's like this like cg steam and again it's very well the effect is very well done but because it's like this literal like smoky vapor and stuff that's like being animated and flying up around their faces and stuff like it it doesn't feel in any way ingrained in like our reality that's not like, really supposed to be at that point right well i mean but in comparison to the, sh- the film shining though that's that's my whole point is yes. that like when you're when you're using that as a sounding board which unfortunately most people will be well because the film's constantly reminding you to well right like it's it's telling you, you to do you, that when which you is try when you try to set your your headspace in in the same headspace of kubrick shining it does feel so far removed from that reality mm-hmm. uh so i i acknowledge that and it's harder for me to step back from that because i do have the supplemental material for this film that i think might be necessary for real enjoyment of the film and i like <laughs> i say that as like i loved th- i loved this film but that is a negative if the only way you can enjoy a piece of art is that ha- is you have to have the supplemental material. Well, I eat the exactly, books. Exactly, exactly. I, 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 I think I'm willing to believe I, I, that there are plenty of I can see that that's a problem. Yeah, I can I, see that that's a problem. I'm, I'm willing to believe, too, that there are plenty of people out there who have read the novels and are were also dissatisfied with this film. You know, I, it can largely come down to perspective. I think it's... It, I would say that it is about... If I had to put a number on it, 85% faithful to the novel, which is pretty fucking high for for a direct film adaptation. And I would say the remainder of the 15% that's not faithful to the novel is all the ham-fisted Shining stuff at the end. Which is also... The worst part. (laughs) It's the worst part. And also, uh, but when it comes to faithfulness and accuracy, as far as I understand it, it might be breaking Dr. Sleep, but it is faithful to the book shining uh, at the end like when they they blow it up with the, well, the boiler they, room spoilers they blow up the hotel at the end yeah. uh well it's, it's Whoops, sorry. that's not <laughs> that's not necessarily faithful to it's it is correcting kubrick's lack of faithfulness to the shining in not blowing up the hotel at the end of his film yeah. because like i said in the last episode when they go to the site of the overlook in the novel doctor sleep the overlook is gone there is no overlook. That's still where they have their final showdown, but it's just not there. So, of course, you know, they left it so we can get all of those scenes of Danny wandering the old dilapidated halls of The Shining and the overlook. It goes full, the overlook, full of the overlook. insidious conjuring but we'll, we'll get yeah. into that in a second there's one thing i want to mention oh, from that earlier is we were talking about how entertaining the smoke and glowing eyes and all that stuff yeah, was I liked it. and I, I think it is entertaining i think the problem i have is it doesn't meld super well with the 
45 minutes to an hour of Ewan McGregor AA stuff, serious character uh, drama stuff, where it, that stuff isn't really over the top in the same way. It, well, that's because, like, Ewan McGregor's character is, like, he's been trying to repress all of it. I think it's supposed to be comparatively understated. I think, like, the, the duality between the two of them is largely intentional and works. I don't think it works. I think it's way too long. I think you could cut down on a lot of that, and it would streamline it much better. I just I like, and make I like for his a, performance a wholly more entertaining movie. I think Ewan McGregor has a great performance. Don't get me wrong, but I think if you're going for an over-the-top movie, sprinkling it in is kind of a half measure. I mean, I don't know if I would necessarily say that the film was going for being extremely over-the-top. It's just that its source material has a lot of over-the-top elements, and it tried to replicate that. So it was going for it because it was trying to be faithful to that. But it's not trying to be—what I'm trying to say is that it's not trying to overall be over-the-top. It's not trying to be an over-the-top film. It's trying to depict— certain material in a faithful way that makes certain elements over the top but not as a whole well again it's one of those things where i feel like on the page it seems less over the top probably than it does when it's visual and very cg i mean i don't think like yeah I, i think i think that that scene like that sequence where they devour baseball boy could have been adapted in a way that was still faithful to the book and still more subtle. I think that the steam could have been less apparent, the shots could have been less direct, and their eyes could have just, like, gleamed occasionally instead of just straight-up glowing. But here's here's what I'm saying, though. I think it would, be, it would have been less fun, that comparative, the subtle version. And if you're going to go for it, they went all in on those sequences. And I I have no pro- I have no qualms with that. I found that I found that scene legitimately quite, quite unsettling and horrifying. I would say that that is the... That is the scene that comes closest to true horror in the in the entire film for me. Most of it is not scary. Like you said, it's, you know, it's people being supernatural at each other. It's it, more, the movie almost feels more like a thriller. It's, than a horror it's more a it, it mm-hmm. becomes more like you said, more anime, more comic booky. It's like great powers clashing. You know, I, I mean, that's a that's a whole subversion of the film is that it sets up who the true not are and what they're capable of and be like well how are you going to deal with this insurmountable threat and oh it turns out that abra is way stronger than than even the true not you know predicted so it becomes more of like two sides squaring off for a a more even matched battle uh which is very king he does that shit Mm -hmm. a lot i i feel Uh, i feel like the the horror involved of considering abra could have been brought out a little bit more. I was never afraid of the world for Abra. If that I mean, makes it's kind of like, hard to when power she's is that so powerful. Raw. Yeah. It, well, no, I mean, like, her power is so raw. What I'm saying is, like, afraid of the world for her, not her. She's a legitimate problem. Like, after the events of this film, she's a straight-up, like, psychic with telekinetic abilities walking around. That's dangerous as hell. There's got to be some negative connotations around that, I think. And there aren't any. Like, she's just a hero, little hero character. I don't know. Like, if you're going to have, like, those kind of, like, intense telekinetic abilities and 
that already like makes you a a siphon for ghosts and horror, it's going to fuck you up. I and it's going to make you like a fucking Sith Lord by the end. I agree to some extent, but at the same time, that idea is very antithetical to what King is all about in his storytelling. King's whole thing is that there's an almost insurmountable evil, but there's also a pure good to counteract that. If you think about most of his work, you know, we just talked about it, like it is pure evil and the kids are pure and wholly good. You know, like there's always that balance and the the whole point is that the darkness seems much bigger and that by the end the light can still you know, disperse it. And I think that for that reason, like Abra plays that role in this. She is the pure and, and good. And I think that yeah, those those archetypes work well in fantasy. I And, and I mean, yeah. And, and that's, that's what I, that's what I've come to expect out of, out of King stuff. Like there's always the, the pure good to counteract the pure evil. And it's like, yeah, if we were going fully realistically, then yeah, Abra probably would become like a Sith Lord. Like you said, yeah, and I don't but really think don't we need it. that I... for the movie, necessarily. I, I think on the flip side, too, I don't think Abra ever felt at threat in this movie. You know, she never felt truly threatened. She got kidnapped, but immediately that was put yeah, to the side. The, the threat the threat is more to the people around her who get caught up in it, like her parents, like her yeah, dad. Yeah, that's fair. Like that's her dad fair. gets murdered, you know. It's Which the, I think is more enjoyable, like, and it's a nice subversion, having the the, the, the kidnapped child, like, not be the, the MacGuffin, you know, or, like, the point of stress. And I mean, film, she, like, but if you're... If, you're going to do the part with the parents. Establish the parents a little more. Sure. Like, like, let me let sure. me be worried or, or concerned yeah. when the dad gets killed because the dad is an archetypical figure who shows up in a couple of scenes. Yeah, and literally his He's role is important. to do nothing. Yeah, like when he dies, I'm like, okay, well. Uh, you know, he was kind of holding back her powers anyway. Like, it was a weird situation. You know? I mean, that like, he was being, portrayed as a very good person. That and, being like, said, it is, like, it is sad to see, like, a good person die, but Abra mechanically, is, like, it doesn't do much more. Abra is powerful, but she, there are multiple times in the film where, or multiple as in a couple of times in the film where she would have been lost if not for Dan's help. Yes. So, like, the despite, you know, the idea that she is all powerful, like, it's not, it's not like she does everything all on her own. It's, you know, it's it's her convincing Dan to actually use his power that he's been trying to smother for years with drugs and alcohol and showing that he, you know, is just as powerful as she as she is. You know, he has to unlock his hidden potential more so in the end than she does. He seems to be the master but I think it's really her who is the master. Oh, because well, no, that's she, like the big theme is like she's, she's like, the out of control force. And like he has to kind of rein, rein her in. Right. But also that she that. she pulls his his potential power out of him that he is willingly trying to suppress. She draws out his potential. Yeah. Within, and the, there's in the a role really nice the master, dance there. Like, yeah, he he reigns her in and then she shows him how to step out of himself yeah. more. And there's a nice you know, I, like nice I, I really there. like the scene when she when she has been kidnapped and uh, and uh, Crow Daddy is driving her back to to Rose 
and Danny takes over her body and and causes the the fucking van to crash. I thought it was weird that um He's like you think you're immortal so you haven't put on your seatbelt. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and that was the my... presumption of immortality is your undoing. But, yeah, for for these like very immortal figures who have been around for a long time, they go quick. Like which I which I thought was was kind of fun. Like, well, they're 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 immortal in. I, well, I mean, they're not immortal. They're not immortal. They're, they're yeah, like the Rose. Rose even makes a point. Like you eat you eat yes. well, live long. You know, not forever. But I mean, that's I mean, some of them have been around like clearly for centuries. Like they make it clear that the the like the grandpa grandpa has been yeah. around since like Rome. Yeah. Uh, and they 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 kind of hint at the fact that he might have been Vlad the Impaler, which is sort of fun. Like I I liked that there was some some very subtle like nicely like worked in bits of the dialogue i I enjoyed i enjoyed yeah i've already said i enjoyed everything about them what one thing i didn't like considering that car scene was him offhandedly mentioning and maybe i missed it but like him offhandedly mentioning that like he had like a concoction or whatever that keeps her sedated and we never really see him like working on anything like that no it's a it's a he he drugged her with opiates and he was also using his own power to with the help of the opiates to keep her shining suppressed right but he were he like he has a bit of a monologue uh when she first starts to rouse about like how he's been how he crafted those opiates or whatever they are, and well, yeah, it shows he like he has concoction. Yeah. yeah, and we don't, we never see it, or like we'd ever get anything like in his trailer or around there where like he has like concoctions of anything, and just like him around some like weird old vials or something would have been enough, be I fun. think. But like it just, I didn't get any enough establishment out of his character to like for that. Yeah, it just kind of came out of the blue, and it's like, oh yeah, I, I did a fantasy potion on you. That's why you can't wake I, up. I'm glad they introduced. That the opiates to begin with in the shooting scene um, yes. in the yeah. in the woods, um, so they did introduce it somewhat, just not him creating it. Right? Yeah, right. we don't have association with him and it. And then later I mean, on, that's drawn. The way but... the way I felt about it is like they've been doing this long enough that they have their methods pretty down pat. So I just buy it. You know, like he has a concoction. They've been. Right. They've it's been probably the same concoction yeah. making for years. Trial, you know, so yeah, trial, and, trial and error. You know, they've they've been doing it. Uh, I, I get that. I love that shootout scene, though. That's great. We haven't talked about it yet, but uh, I know I know you weren't super sold on the on the effects, Ben. But I actually thought that the CG was quite good in this movie. And uh, in places, in places, specifically, it was. I really I really like the cycling effect when when any of the members of yeah, the I thought that was fun. Die where they sort of phase in and out of existence, and you can like see their skit, their muscle and nerves and bones and stuff. Honestly. Yeah. The shootings uh, in the woods was probably my favorite se- sequence of the movie. Um, I thought I, it was very I fun. love the turn, yeah. and I think it's a lot of fun. It's probably the most fun. It's nice scene to in the movie. Uh, to see the good guys sort of like setting a trap for the bad guys, and that it actually works. Um, yeah, all the plot points that occur in that scene uh, were great, and I didn't expect several. That's of why. Them. That's why I kind of don't mind. I didn't really mention it earlier, but that's why I kind of don't mind that they very early on establish what the true knot is capable of, and they don't keep that very ambiguous because then I think it puts everybody both sides on more even footing so we know what each are capable of so there's more excitement in you know the the back and forth in in a more traditional horror movie like the shining like 
I think you keep your monster hidden for most of the movie, reveal it, you know, at the end. But it, you know, this isn't that kind of movie. It's mm-hmm. not where there is a a uh, un unbeatable force, you know, against just very human people who survive despite that. It's like psychic good guys, psychic bad guys. What happened when they fight? Right, and and like there are plenty of great examples too of horror films that have a where you see the the monster for a great portion of the movie like uh look at like Herzog's Nosferatu for example sure he's the main character identify with with Dracula right and that's what's spooky about yeah. it and it's it's totally justifiable and fine and fun like I yeah I, I have I have few qualms I think it's I think it's kind of hard to identify with the true knot because we see what they do to children and it's and, so reprehensible and, and, and how repulsive. horrible it is yeah. but that being said what I did enjoy is when Grandpa Flick uh, dies of old age and we see the the cycling procedure for the first time, I like that there's sort of a parallel with, like, him knowing that he's dying and being afraid, you know, where we have Danny comforting the older people in the in the hospice, which is heavy handed. I agree. I, well, not... that's a good segue because yeah. I do want to talk about that. Well, more. let me finish first and then we can and then we can sure. go back to that. But I, I like that there's that parallel that like even the monsters are afraid to die and that there's kind of that sense of vulnerability there at the end. Even the monsters are scared of what's after. Well, that's too. their that's their core drive is that right. is, is sustaining their own life. Yeah. yeah. And it works well. Yeah, it's it's a little interesting because like Rose Rose is the one who delivers the line about the true not not being immortal. And when she does, like she she's so direct about it. Like it really you really get the vibe that she's accepted that. Well, about I herself. Think so like when she has that turn later, it doesn't do I a whole lot for me. I think she's more disdainful about it because when she turns Andy at the beginning, she does make it seem like she's offering her immortality. Oh, yeah. It's only when she's called out for it that she's like, I never said you were going to be immortal. It's like, well, you kind of did. You implied it. You didn't say it in, in those words, but, you know, you implied that. Which can, you know, kind of said. You know, so she's so in I, denial about it a little bit. Right. She's 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 in denial and she doesn't like being challenged about it when they're like, I thought you said we couldn't die. And she's like, I never said that, you stupid bitch. Like <laughs> uh, defensive even. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, can exactly. imply a fear. Yeah. I dig on that. I yeah. dig on that. Uh, so anyway, the, yes, the let's elder talk home. about the elderly home a bit. Because sure. I thought that was a subplot that didn't really work in the movie very well for me. Um, I think it probably works well in the book because you have time to develop it's it. It's underdeveloped. The book is also, um, it's like it's the most like roll credit scene too. It's like the, the sequences where he is being Doctor Sleep. Yeah, like, well, and it's it's underdeveloped. And it's like you underdevelop the Doctor Sleep sequences of Doctor Sleep. Also, they reference The Shining very specifically in his interview sequence to get the job there. He goes into yeah. the exact same room as the Overlook office. To yeah, have but the, the desk is the same. Everything is laid out on the same. Everything and is the same. I, I love a good Easter egg and it's, a nod, but like, is, before it even shot the desk... That point. Yeah, no, like no. Before it even shot the desk, I was just like, whoa, well, because what the are wall, you doing? Because the room is pink. And yeah, they don't, it's they don't so paint, vivid. They don't paint rooms like that anymore. It fits in The Shining when it was in the fucking late 70s, early 80s, 
But when you when you immediately throw Danny into that room and you immediately see these like powder pink walls, it's like, oh, it's the exact same room from The Shining. Yeah. Whoa. Why? It's it's incredibly jarring. Yeah. It's supposed to be it's supposed to be like a a parallel because like it's like poetry. It it, rhymes. rhymes. Right. Thanks, George Lucas. His dad was interviewing. (laughs) Worked well in the prequels, didn't it? His dad was doing a job interview in a room and now he's doing a job in uh, a job interview in, a, in an office that looks just like it. It wasn't the only time they did that shit either. Did y'all notice that at the end when he goes into the gold room uh, and he sits down at the bar, he's wearing the exact same clothes? Yep, as we'll we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah, the definitely. whole third act but, is yeah, is something that, to talk about. Like, but with, please let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. Do something. Let me know why that room is the same other than remember when. Well, that, that is awesome. 100% like, and, and remember like, when. That's the fuck on. And like, honestly, the it's such... It was so jarring. It's such loaded imagery that at that point in the movie, I was like, is he going to go crazy helping these old people or something? Right. You know, and when that doesn't happen and when really not much happens besides uh, a cat that can sense death, essentially, roaming around the, the hall. I want to talk about that. Which um, is an old, it's an old urban legend. It is, but the, the issue with it, because it's an old urban legend and it works as an old urban legend because it's not true. The, the problem with making <laughs> it a mechanic uh, in this world is, okay, so it's a little, it's an elder home, right? People die there a lot. And whenever the cat comes into the room and sits on their bed, that means they are definitely going to die. Like every the time they make that clear, like die. the old yeah. people are like, oh, sorry. the old people are dead set on that fact. And it's made clear that that is the case. Yeah. Here's the problem. It's a cute little cat. It's going to hop on people's beds all the time. Here's my here's my my fun theory about that. Right. It's actually not a supernatural thing at all. All those old people are just allergic to cats. <laughs> And they're so infirm that the cat being there kills them. Yep, that's it. Then that's go. that's the reality, and that's why it does, and that's why it's so hundred. I thought that effective. cat. I, I I thought that cat was delightful. That cat was so cute. So like yeah. one, yeah. Of, yeah. Shout out to cat, cat, one of sure. the most adorable on screen cats uh, I've I've ever seen. A uh, a much more subtle reference to The Shining in that whole part is the first night. When he goes into the the old guy's room where he follows the cat in there and he sees that the cat senses death for the first time. Did you guys notice that the room that he went into was number 217, which is the room in the book The Shining rather than 237 that Kubrick did? That's the that's the room. Honestly, that kind of thing that I'm okay I think is with. okay. It's like it's, like those sorts of things are fine. You know, the it's the kind like, of thing that you catch you have it. to know the like right. very subtle thing. It's worked in there. It's not like fucking thrown in front of my face. It's, also, it's a fun little retcon. Also, I like that. And also, it kind of implies that like the building is following him everywhere. Cool. Also, that's great. Abra's house number is nineteen eighty, which is when, their room. No, which no. is which is when The Shining takes place and when it came out, when the movie came <laughs> These out. These Easter eggs, man. Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, it, whatever. It, it's not like the camera never like pans directly to. No, it no, no. It's just it's just in the so establishing shot of their yeah. house. I just I'm okay I wouldn't, with those little I wouldn't things. have noticed it otherwise. One, yeah. one thing uh, fun. with the old people's home, sure. Uh, that we didn't really even get into with The Shining is uh, at a certain point he goes into a room that he says is empty and Halloran appears yep. from the first movie, a character we didn't even really talk about. 
No, uh, not even in our discussion. Last episode, which Halloran innocent. Halloran we brought up like Stanley Brothers a little bit. I mean, yeah, we mentioned him, but I, I mean, in basically in in The Shining, his role is to explain The Shining to Danny, and then he hears Danny's psychic calls for help. And and goes up to try to help them and ends up being killed by Jack Nicholson. Uh, his ghost makes several appearances in yeah. Doctor Sleep. But he was one of the ho- most wholly good characters yes. in the yes. in the Shining. Yes, um, but very he appears, pure Dick Halloran. And we get an underdeveloped subplot on top of an underdeveloped subplot with the boxes. Honestly, he I think they're overdeveloped. A, I think I think I think they show too much of the boxes because they show them so much that like you know what's coming. The way they the execute like, the so boxes clear. is is pretty is pretty corny. Like like yeah, and it really it really hurts the end of the well, movie. Well, that one scene in particular rough. in the third act, which we'll I'll, I'll just keep for our whole discussion of the. Third we should act. get into that okay. probably next. Okay. But yeah. Finish um, your finish your thought. I I think it's just not well handled, and it's a you little. You mean it's true, not well handled. Okay. No, I don't mean oh, that. Okay, sorry. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> it just comes off as particularly corny in a way that isn't really as fun as some of the corniness yeah, of the rest. It's of the not. Movie. It's very similar in the book, but in the book it seems less dumb than the way they present it in the Again, movie. Again, it probably translates it's, better on the page the, than visually. It, at the very beginning of the film, we have uh, Danny uh, as as a little boy. They've moved to Florida after the events of The Shining, and he uh, he sees Halloran's ghost. Danny asks him like these: the ghosts from the Overlook keep coming and haunting me. How do I, you know, what do I do about this? And Halloran's like, oh, well, you know, you create a box in your mind and you put them in there and you lock it and you leave it, Uh, which is, you know, the idea of the memory palace, which I think is a very cool concept. They do some interesting stuff with later in the movie. Like when we do a great on the Sherlock Holmes show, too. (laughs) That's all I got to say on that. But like when when Rose like uh, tries to get into like Abra's memory palace and like she lays a trap for her and all that stuff is very cool. One of my it's other fun. favorite sequences fun. of the movie yeah. is that. But like the idea of like whenever these ghosts come to you, you trap them inside a, your psychic mind box and you leave them there to rot. I know you mentioned that you you were frustrated to see the 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 lady from room two three seven. I actually really like that that part at the beginning that they then mirror at the end where uh, little Danny goes into the bathroom and she's like getting out of the bathtub and looks like she's about to like yeah and you got to live with your demons and he shuts the door and then you hear her screaming. I think that 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 was executed pretty well. I just think she loses her punch when you see her over and over again in the movie. Sure. It doesn't have that same impact. And I mean, in fairness, I don't think it's meant to have the same impact. No. But well, it's supposed to it's supposed to show that at that point and from this point on, Danny has mastered the ghosts of the Overlook, that they are no longer a threat because he is more powerful than they are. There's the idea of of now the the new more physical threat than just old evil memories that keep coming back, you know. The direct callbacks to The Shining are not very well done. The old lady in the bathtub, I don't mind. It's 
straight out of the book and I I just like that visual of the of the little child going into the bathroom with her and shutting the door and then hearing her screaming instead of him. I I just thought that that's uh, uh, just a very fun uh, image. Yeah, and her the first time they show her like coming out of the dark is really well shot. I, oh I yeah, at the, at the very very beginning, yeah. I thought that was pretty spooky as well. Uh, before like, we, the, the cinematography in general, I think is great. It has big shoes to fill with the formalism of Kubrick. It's not yeah. as meticulous. Um, no, no, by any means. And it's like, yeah, it, well, again, that's that's the problem, right? Like as soon as we compare it to Kubrick, it's like, how dare you? Well, that's that's <laughs> like my, my bit on that. It's, it's, like, it's you something can't. that's begging like, for it. Yeah, it's though. like why. Why are you trying to remake Casablanca? Like, what are you doing? Like, and that's let's use yeah. that. Let's use that to it's segue yes, into the time. third act because oh boy, I will say the cinematography works great when you're not comparing it. To when Kubrick. you're not comparing it's it to great. Kubrick, it's fun and it's, and it's fine. easier to do that when you're not in the goddamn Overlook Hotel. Yes, it's easy to set. It's easier to separate it from Kubrick when you're not being placed into a setting that Kubrick has so painstakingly and meticulously established 40 years before this. Right, and here's the fun thing, right? (laughs) Like, I watched The Shining for the first time, like, two weeks ago, and I watched it again right before we recorded the podcast, right? I don't have decades or years of rose-colored glasses over this film. You know, I recognize that, like, there's the societal, like, worship of of, of The Shining, right? But like after watching it, I just I just found myself admiring it for all the reasons that I've already justified and brought up. I don't admire it because society admires it. Right. So uh, my, my point being is like I, I'm not coming at it from a point of rose colored glasses. I only just saw The Shining. And well, I, I will say I that I'm also not coming at it from a point of rose colored glasses because I, I have rose colored glasses for this source material for Dr. Sleep. Yes. And everything that we're about to get into in this third act is the greatest divergence from the source material and it fucking sucks ass (laughs) yeah well that's the thing i think i don't have rose-colored glasses necessarily but i appreciate the formalism and intent of the cinematography of the shining let's let's be clear too it's like you don't have to have rose-colored glasses of something if the thing is rose-colored but anyway sorry i'll let you finish your point there's a direct intent for every single shot in the shining where with this movie, the intent isn't quite there as much. And it's, it's, not it's more forgivable it's not when Kubrick. it's not in the overlook. Right. I don't think the style of this film changes that much in the third act. I think it's just way more apparent when you're yes. putting it in the same location. I, no, I, I, I agree and that's, a, that's a great place to start because the film opens with uh, a different actress playing Wendy and, and a different Potter, actress playing Shelley Duvall. And I thought, I I thought, thought those she were did great. really good. I, I thought both of them did pretty right. solid. Like those sequences honestly. were fine and even the stuff and, with... And Scat, um, the Scatman Crother, the, who, the guy who played uh, Dick Halloran in this, I, I want to mention that I was very happy to see both of them and that they were both different actors and she was doing a great Shelley Duvall and he was doing a great Scatman Crothers, and I was so happy to not see these old actors' faces digitally rendered de-aged. on... Yeah, well, digitally de-aged and rendered onto other people's bodies because that is the way that a lot of filmmakers would take it at this point, and I was very happy to not see that in those cases. Yes, yes. There well, is a notable exception. Yes. Shelley Duvall Another is <laughs> notably kind of rough nowadays, so I'm especially oh, glad yeah. about that. I mean, she's very I, old. Yeah, I sh- don't drag her shit out anyway. Yeah. Scatman Crothers has been dead for years, yeah. and I think that the people that they found 
to do them like they had obviously studied those performances to a high degree that they mm-hmm. could imitate them extremely well. Yeah, kudos yeah. to those actors. Extremely um, well, well. And I think I think while Shelley Duvall's replacement doesn't quite have the gaunt, you know, buggy eyes as the did, original. I think they did give her I fake think, teeth. I think she did a good job. And I, yeah, you know, I think they replicating. Did give her fake teeth. The I'm okay with that. With like that. it's it did a really good job of dancing on that line because you, whenever you're portraying a character uh, with a different actor in a film, you have to be very careful. It's loaded. About that. It's, it's loaded. It is very loaded. And there are several examples of it that I can pull from of, you know, where they, you know, the little line is danced. Like a good example is like when they traded out Dumbledores in Harry Potter. You can tell there's a difference. Like in the actors, they don't, they're not trying to just imitate the same Dumbledore, right? And that's fine, and like, and that that's a much more respectful way to do it. You're not just going and imitating the person who's died. But when you're doing these bit parts, the imitation right. provides better immersion. It I does. It does. More but believable. there's there's still a line. Like you can tell it's not Shelley Duvall, but it's okay. Like they're 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 trying to portray, right. but she, portray she Wendy. She feels she feels like the same character. It's, it's not, yeah, it doesn't feel like an affront to Shelley Duvall. It's like they're no. they're they're just performing the same part, like someone else playing. King Lear or someone else playing a Shakespearean she's, role. She's for got, like, yeah. We've seen all, lots of actors play Hamlet. She's got her accent down pat, her delivery, even like her facial mannerisms. Like, it's obviously not Shelley Duvall, but it feels like Wendy. Yeah. And the other guy is obviously not Scatman Crothers, but it feels like Dick Howard. Well, that's and, and the thing. It, it, imitation is forgivable when they look close enough. Yeah. Yes. And that's a good segue right. into. It's like the Uncanny Valley. Enter. Right. <laughs> dollar store Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I mean, yeah, credit, they, they credit a, to dollar stores. Yeah. They <laughs> did a good job casting Shelley Duvall as Catman Crothers' replacement. Jack Nicholson's replacement? No, no, no. No, 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 It no, looks no, like no. they pulled Looking up. Looking rough. What the fuck were they thinking? It looks like... Frankly. It looks like they were on, like, Hollywood Boulevard and pulled a fucking uh, Jack Torrance impersonator off the a street. A bad one. Like, like those guys are never very good. Like, like here's, here's the deal. Like, when you're, when you're like, breaking down a face and you're, you know, like, you're associating it with someone, the shape of the face is really important. The actual jawline and all the rest of it, like, these are things that we subliminally cue into. Yeah. Like, I've had to do a lot of portraits lately, and I've been using the same like for American Fugitive and I was using the same friends for a lot of references and changing their faces slightly to make them look like different people. You know, it's amazing how little you can get away with. But like jawline's really important. And this actor didn't have one. And Jack Nicholson's is like relatively pronounced. He has a little bit of a double chin in that movie because he's wearing a lot of sweaters. Yeah. The bulge under his chin is pronounced, but he has a chin. And this the actor they picked doesn't well he doesn't he it's, doesn't it's, get he doesn't get uh jack nicholson's cadence or delivery down either no it's it feels like a cheap imitation i mean i guess you could say that like it is a, thematically it's not actually jack nicholson it's the overlook using jack nicholson's button it 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 it's fucking bad. Yeah, like there's cast literally anyone else. Yeah, and and he's he's on screen for way too long. He totally deflates that entire uh, reunion between Danny and Jack. You know when he truly casts aside his father's legacy and decides to be his own person. It's totally deflated by this absolutely laughable Jack Nicholson replacement. Yeah, no, it's it's rough. It's like, bad, he, yeah. Jack Nicholson just has such defense 
refined features with his eyebrows. Like um, he's his, like one of the, the most the bridge iconic, of his nose, one of the like most his, iconic his actors eyes, of all time. His smile is just like it's so like thin. We've just seen his face. So much in pop culture, like, and largely from images, images from The Shining. He just has such a recognizable and defined face. Either do or don't for him, man. I think he might have even been wearing fake eyebrows. I don't know. I just, as soon as, like, the shot cut to him, it was, like, white noise. I think I still would have been more offended if they had Carrie Fishered him, but the alternative was not good. No. It's still, mean, it still was ass, but I do think I would have, I think I would have been more repulsed if we had gotten a cg jack Nicholson there is a third scene. option just have his voice and not yeah, show just his don't fucking right, face right. like no, and that would have been you. a good I subversion i think the scene could have worked better that way like if if he had well, just been talking that's to all, the room that's subtlety that it this movie over, doesn't right. really have and if the camera so. had panned over just like in the shining and no one was there and then it pans back to him and you hear his voice and then it pans back over and the cup is there because the glass is enough to like represent his father you know, like that's that's it, the sequence centers around that because it's between the two of them. Sure. And if it's just the Overlook Hotel giving him the glass, it's fine. But the moment you have this, uh, God, like it's edited the same as that sequence. Like he sits down at the the bar and he starts talking yeah. to an invisible Jack Torrance, and then well, it pans over and. This guy is there, and it, it's oh, it's it's the, the weird. The problem, the problem is that they feel like they have to have a moment of Dan denying his father, denying the, the glass. Well, that's the thing is, the is prob- more than enough. Well, the problem is that he has already, we've already seen him deny his father when it jumps forward in time earlier in the film to the AA stuff, to the AA stuff, and he's getting his eight year sobriety chip, and he tells a story about his like. You know, my dad, you know, once stood in a place like this after five months and more than anything at that time, you know, he wanted to be better for me and my mom. And it's like we have seen The Shining. We know how that turned out. We know that he was not able to be better and that he succumbed to the evil influence of this hotel and died for it. That is the moment where he's staying there with his eight year sobriety chip, you know, immeasurably longer than his father was capable and he of. He never of axe being murdered sober. anyone. And he never axe murdered anybody. And that is all the denial we need. Well, and that's all. And that's in the book. That's all it is. It's like, I am not my father because I have already done something that he is not capable of. And then to have him have to face the overlook in the form of his father just feels so trite and predictable and cheap. And I, I hated everything yeah. about it. And it's, it's, it's like I'll I'll even go as far as to say like him being tempted by the drink by the overlook is is okay because it fits into the theme and it sure. and it works. It it's just the father it's part. Fine. But like if he'd gone into that room and the glass had been there or something, it would have been more excu- excusable. But the sequences with Shelley Duvall are like largely not at the overlook. They're they're out in the park, they're back in their own home. They're not trying to replicate right. anything from the film. And same with uh, uh, same with the actor who's portraying Scatman Crothers. Um, yeah. Like, they weren't trying to do shot for shots with those actors. And so the association is a lot less blatant, right? But when you do a sequence that is shot for shot of the original and you include a different actor in there, and it's, it's that alarming and abrasive how different that actor is, it taints 
the original. Yeah. Like, like I'm whenever I the next time I sit down to watch like the masterpiece that is The Shining, and I watch that sequence, it's going to be very difficult for me to not think about the that discount Jack Nicholson weird bit in this movie. I I don't like, know if so I wack. agree. I I well, like, with that part, I I don't think I'll be thinking of it. Yeah, because I think you honestly, can train yourself to this, separate this, that. This you whole, have to. This like, whole third act felt like a universal theme park haunted house of the shining. Oh yes. Yeah. Well you know, said. Yeah, it really did feel like a, you get, like a theme park. You ride. get so many set piece after set piece of just the exact same as the shining, done worse. And it's fun uh, at Universal it, because you're there and like, yeah. you know, you're on a ride or something. Like I, well, that's what it felt like. It felt like a ride. Yeah, but the problem is it, it's in the same format as the shining. So that shit does not can I? Uh, doesn't work. Because <laughs> you're absolutely right. That's yeah, a great comparison. Yeah. Can I tell you guys how the Doctor Sleep novel ends so I can explain why I personally oh, was so insanely curious. frustrated sure. with that Please ending? Do. They go back to the site of the Overlook. All that's left is they've built an elevated viewing platform with like those coin operated binoculars. So you can go up there and view the mountains and it's pretty and whatnot. You know, that's all that's left. So they it's go. It's a literal overlook. It's, it's a literal overlook, but mm-hmm. the hotel is gone. So they go there. Uh, Rose shows up. She confronts Danny. She overpowers him. And similarly to in the movie, she tries to, despite the fact that his steam is dirty and tainted, she still tries to consume it. And Danny releases the ghosts that he has locked in his memory palace. Uh, But rather than them just literally attacking her and them eating her like they do in this movie, which is fucking stupid, Mm -hmm. rather she eats them and becomes sick from the the tainted steam that's so much better she becomes sick oh, which oh weakens God. which weakens her power danny forces her to the edge of the plat of the platform and something pushes her off and she falls to the ground and dies and he recognizes so it's even like subliminal in the book and oh. he and he recognizes in that moment oh that God. the force that the force that pushed her off is all that remains of his father and that is his father's spirit's attempt at redemption but there's no face to face it's just that he knows that his father from wherever he is aided him somehow and then Danny and Abra go back home to New Hampshire and everything is peachy keen happy ending Oh my god. When you have the ghosts like literally rip her apart. Yeah. It completely like destroys all of the world building yeah. of the the Overlook Hotel. The whole point of the ghosts manipulating Jack is because the ghosts had no actual right. agency. So they, and so as soon as you give them agency, the entirety of the shining doesn't make any sense. And, and well, they, the worst yeah. part is he summons them by going full undertaker. Oh my god. Yeah, oh, with the, the cloudy eyes is it's a it's God, a, that's cringy as so hell. So dumb. Wow. Yeah, yeah I know we were talking about outrageous. Decent to good effects earlier. But that I mean, I think I think it's from a technical perspective, like CG wise, they look fine. It's that the effect is dumb and overused and that it looks corny in context. Well, let's think like, like, yeah, like, look, look at the world you live in. Like, like, the only other associations we have of that are like our pop. I think it's I think in that case, it's not to say that the effects are bad. It's the choice of what effects to use. Sure. And I think that's that's uh, more very bad indicative of the the problems with the right. some of the choices that and I have. Like, like Storm and from X Men? Like, what after, is going on? And like, after that to have the ghosts kill Rose and then immediately all forcibly possess Danny 
to then try so he can to then be Jack so he can be, then be Jack Nicholson to so limp can get around the, the hotel with the axe, trying to yeah, trying to kill Abra, and then you know he fights it off long enough to go blow up the hotel. There's a part of me who's like, yeah, blow up the hotel, but it's so fucking stupid. It's like I I loved so much in this movie, and then the last thirty minutes just like spat in my face. It mm. definitely didn't stick the landing. There's a point where Abra's running away from Danny and she turns the corner and guess what? The the two twins the, the, are there. The spooky twins are there. Yeah, it felt... I mentioned this earlier, but I, it felt like an insidious movie, yeah. almost, where it's just I agree that haunted house... Scare after scare. When they when they get yeah, to yeah, even uh, use jump scares like when they get to the overlook, it feels like a very different film all of a sudden, and in in just like the absolute worst way. I mean, I didn't hate it because I was laughing at a lot of it. I thought a lot of it was funny, dumb, bad. Like when they're in the memory maze and the giant box is like sneaking up behind Rose to try to eat her. That is one of the funniest things I've ever right. seen. Speaking of, yeah, that, that whole sequence, like the the moment she she jumps into that other world and they, they set up the dialogue like so ham-fistedly there and it yeah. was like... Well, she thinks she's in Abra's Abra's mind is like, oh, well, you know, like here are mine, doesn't mean shit. And it's like, as the viewer, it's like, we know that's the maze. We know that she doesn't have any memories of that. It's clearly not her mind. It's right. like, oh, well, it, you're in Danny's. And then, and then. Well, that's one of those things have for to us, wait. the audience. Right, I guess. Right? Like, well, Rose, Rose, removes all Rose, the doesn't, means, Rose doesn't know, but we know. Right. It's like, <laughs> oh, cool. Like, we, we have, we have dramatic irony over the villain. Like, so that just removes, deflates all the tension. Because, like, cool. We know that the main characters have some sort of upper hand over Rose. You, well, you mean, just, you just gave it all away. Like, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not nervous for anyone anymore. I don't have a problem with them having an upper hand. They do the same thing with the shootout scene earlier where they set that trap. I don't have a problem with that. I felt like they always had an upper hand. It's just that it's just that it's the scene is so fucking corny and having Rose monologuing is so dumb. And then having the big box sneaking up behind her trying to eat her is so dumb. The big CG box. But like at that point, we've already had so much dumb shit of Ewan McGregor wandering through exact rep replicas of the the overlook set uh, which they did build i did read a, an interview with mike flanagan he had access mm-hmm. to all what, of uh, what Kubrick's a fucking notes. waste i agree uh i i can't say that that was the best decision that they made i hate the, the, the problem is that, yeah it's like 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 we were laughing at it because like the other option was just to be outraged to be, uh, to and be angry mad about and it. have a bad time and it's like i brought this up in the podcast before it's like I, I, if if i feel like i'm i'm held hostage like laughing at something like, I'm not going to give it points for laughing at it. Like, in Troll 2, I'm generally laughing at the movie when it's bad because there's, like a, there's an endearing quality about it there. But here it's like, I'm laughing at it because the only other option is to be angry. And that sucks, man. Why would you try and do that? Like, we recognize this is a bad idea. Like, remaking Psycho shot for shot was markedly, like, considered a bad idea. Like, the the poster for this movie, uh, the, the undertitle for it is Dare to Go Back. Yeah, and that's rough, man. Like, oh, like, w- why? No one's why? ever really gone. Like, w- w- like it just it it just Ugh. polluted like any chance of this movie had of like standing on its own legs. It totally could have, and I think that's what's so frustrating about it is like I had so much fun watching the rest of this movie, and if it hadn't tried to associate itself so strongly with something like that 
is uncomparable, it would have been fine. Which was my fear like, going into this to. movie. It and really didn't. Big shoes. Big shoes. Yeah. One thing I want to mention, the music in this film, it felt like they... Oh, no, I wanted to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. They... It felt like they took all of the hits from the original soundtrack and just did kind of bad covers of them. Yes, yes. Um, no, uh, the the biggest one, like the I think the the one of the greater offenders is very early on in the movie when like the there's a scene transition and you see Ewan McGregor like like uh, getting off the bus. Uh, he sees Tiny Town for the first time, and there's like a little train going by, and you're getting this like horror sting during it. And there's like apropos of nothing. Like, it's like, why is the soundtrack telling me something spooky and and like scary is going on? Well, that should be yeah, like, they, tense. They it's use... like I'm looking at a children's train, and like there's nothing ominous behind it or going on with that sequence. And after watching the film, it still doesn't make any sense. W- why did they put a spooky sting there for the Tiny Town train? Yeah, there, well, there are so many moments there, like that. Was so like much of it, like they had the whether it was the the, the iconic organ remix, the uh, the Windy Carlos heartbeat in random kind of weird places, or the Bartok pieces, or even the the Overlook uh, theme in the third act. It, it just felt God, like right a, from like a bad cover. Yeah, the the score gave me it, I, it was it was the same kind of like shining callback stuff. Member this, member this. I think the movie is at its weakest when it is asking me to member this. Uh, let Let's go ahead and get into rating. Yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and start. I uh, it, as you said, it's very large shoes to fill. Uh, the the shoes of Stanley Kubrick. Uh, do I think this film fills those shoes? I do not. Do I think that it is a good and faithful adaptation of the novel Dr. Sleep? Yeah, for the most part I do. Did I enjoy myself during this movie? Yeah, until the last 30 minutes. So I got I got two hours of entertainment out of uh, this two and a half hour movie. I can't say what it's like to, to watch the movie without having the knowledge of the supplemental material. I think it's going to hurt a lot of people because I think when the only point of comparison Harrison you have is uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, you're probably going to have a bad time. That being said, I'm not ashamed that I uh, that I liked this movie quite a bit. I'm going to give it a solid four out of five. I did really like this movie. It's, it's going to be impossible for any movie to follow up a Kubrick movie. This movie has it more than its fair share of problems with that, whether it's a bit bloated of a runtime subplots that aren't fully developed um some bad directorial choices or even just bouncing between being entertaining being a traditional horror movie being a kubrick adjacent movie and being a king movie that being said this one was a bit of a roller coaster ride for me to rate the the first half of it was probably a two star for me but then the the middle chunk of it i got invested in and it was fun and that was probably a four star and then the third act came and it fell flat on its face (laughs) and it was back to two star so i think all in all i'll give it a three star um, I think it's fair um, because half of it was really great and inventive and fun, and the other half was a train wreck. So yeah, um, essentially uh, same as you, Ben. I, I feel like yeah, I could have gotten like uh, a four, four and a half enjoyment out of this movie because like for me, I enjoyed the first half. I enjoyed the second half. I enjoyed the whole bit right up until the end. A- apart from a-, a few things sprinkled here and there that that were offensive, but never like 
terrible, you know? And like, I know later on, if, if, if I, if I remove too many stars for, um, how much of an affront the, the climax was, I'd probably feel like I was being reactionary later on. I'll, I'll just, I'll just remove one. I, I'm going to, I'm going to give it three and just a little, little wag of my finger. Like, come on, like what, what, what were you doing? <laughs> what were you doing? So yeah, like I'm going to give it three stars because when it's fun, I, I cannot say enough. I, I, I think the acting is great across the board. I think Ewan McGregor puts on a great performance. I think Rose is a very, very fun character and I, I like the way that she's treated. Great stuff all around, except for the end. So I'm going to give it three. I'm going to give it three stars. All right. Well, uh, that'll be an average of 3.3 out of five pods for Dr. Sleep. As we predicted, not another perfect <laughs> not another perfect five. <laughs> Combo so breaker. Our, our hot streak has come to an end. Next week, we're going to be talking about something that I'm hoping is yet another addition to the year of the sophomore bump. Uh, we'll be talking about Jennifer Kent's second film of the Babadook, uh, The Nightingale. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm pretty excited to see this movie. I've heard really great things, and uh, they just put it up on Hulu, so we go and watch it. Mm-hmm. And we go and talk about it. So that will be next week. And uh, that should bring us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, if you like the show, be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a nice review. Tell us what you uh, think of the show, what you like about it. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at PodPeoplePod. Uh, have you seen Dr. Sleep? What'd you think? Have you read the book? What'd you think? Is it bad? Is it good? Tell me about it. You can also follow us at letterbox.com slash podpeoplepod for a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to the corresponding episodes. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. I'm at Mr. Sheets on Twitter. And I occasionally tweet for Light Arc Studio for our wonderful game uh, that's in early access on Steam. It stares back. Go check it out. Big tings coming, man. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we hope you have a good night. Check back with us next week for the Nightingale. And until then, it's time to get some sleep. Yeah.